Before we, well, we're in Numbers, and the, we're going to finish up chapter 26 today. We did the first half of the census last week, and, but there was one part left. So the census in Numbers, as you remember, was broken up into a census. What's the purpose of a census in the Bible? On a purely practical level, what's the purpose of a census? It's a military, yeah, to number the fighting troops. That's the purpose. It's not to collect sociological data like our census today. It's to number the fighting men. The other purpose of the census is to number the priests because they were seen as their own unit of fighting men. Only they didn't fight other armies. They guarded the tabernacle. They were the the honor guard, so to speak, in Israel. And so both of those groups get a census. And the book of Numbers begins with a census of the fighting men of Israel, 20 years or older, who came out of Egypt, that whole generation. And then last week, now we're in the second part of the book of Numbers, which is that whole generation died off. And so now the new generation's fighting troop force is being counted. And after that, which we looked at last week, then the new priesthood or the new generation of the priesthood is counted. So Numbers, <clears throat> Numbers is concerned with a lot of things, but one of those is the national identity of Israel and their origin and, and their development and their history moving from group massive group of slaves to the desert, covenant with God, rebirth as a new nation coming out of Mount Sinai or leaving Mount Sinai, with a new destiny and then failing at that destiny, but the promise still holding true to the people as a whole. And so we've we've seen that throughout Numbers that the promise of God to Israel will hold true no matter what. But, as we talked about last week, that promise cannot be taken for granted by any individual Israelite. In fact, an entire generation of Israelites are cut off from that promise and they die in the desert. So this new generation is carrying on the promise to the collective people of Israel even though their parents forfeited their right to that promise by rebelling high-handedly against God. And so that's where we're coming to with this (coughs) census. And Moses is basically regrouping the people and he's saying okay, let's, let's make sure we're all on the same page once again. All right? Your, your parents are dead. My brother's dead. My sister's dead. I'm about to die. You're about to be led into the land by someone else. Not by me, because I rebelled against God. Moses did that, actually. We saw a few chapters, him striking the rock and God saying, that you forfeited your right to the blessing. Um, and Moses saying, and your parents because they rebelled against God. So there's this whole generation of rebellion. The new generation is going to be called to look back at the mistakes of their previous generation as they look forward to the destiny and the future that God's called them to. Looking back, looking forward. And that's a balance that Israel is going to constantly lose sight of. Looking back, with not with rose-colored glasses, Right? Israel is going to be tempted to look at their past 
in the future and, and emphasize the God brought us out of Egypt part. God split the waters of the Red Sea part. God called us as a chosen nation part. We are the apple of His eye. All those things are true. <clears throat> They're not wrong for acknowledging that. So they, they look to the past and rightfully those things should be looked at and celebrated. But Israel's not always going to be good at looking back at their own history and saying, but we also rebelled against God. We turned to idols time and time again. We, we wanted to go back to Egypt. We weren't happy with what God had given us. Our ancestors, going further back to the patriarchs, committed all sorts of deception and dysfunctional families, murder, incest. There's not the tendency to look back and to see those things. Right? What God calls Israel, and, and part of what we have Torah for, is for both of those things to be seen for what they are. If you were going to write a national history of your people, which people did in the ancient Near East, you would not include the flaws. You don't find the annals of King Sargon or King Nebuchadnezzar or King Ashurbanipal or any of these other ancient Near East kings, any of the pharaohs, you don't find in their accounts of their reign all the screw-ups that they made, all the sins they committed, all the times they rebelled against their gods. You don't find that in there. But you do in Scripture. Why? Because Numbers and all of Torah cause God's people to look honestly at where they came from, not for the purpose of focusing on the past, but for the purpose of living the future without committing the errors of the past. You see that? There's a both and. Now, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I'm going to take a little detour here because this has been on my heart in particular the past two days. And, and it really hit me this morning as I was getting ready to come and teach today. There's, there's something I think that Numbers has to say to us, and in particular something we've seen in Numbers has to say to us right now in our society. They're, they're, the, the Bible is amazingly relevant. We don't have to make it relevant. It just is because it speaks to purposes. And I feel like it has a, there's a very powerful message in Scripture for us but I have to navigate carefully through it to bring out the, the meaning of the scriptural thing without all the excess baggage being thrown in. I'm going to try to do that, so I ask for your grace in this. The beauty of this group, as I look here and see everybody, is I know for a fact that we have people on wide ends of the political spectrum and everything in between. I know that for a fact. And I know that we have people that have different views on a number of different issues, theological, sociological, political, racial. I know that for a fact. And yet, we're a unified body. And I believe that that's a good thing and it's something we should model to the world. Our culture right now, especially this week, it's always something new and it runs in cycles, so in about five days this won't even be a headline anymore. But so right now, especially if you're any active on social media, you realize there's a little bit of a controversy going on. A little bit. Involving things like flags and anthems and football players and kneeling and all this kind of stuff. People are going crazy over it, at least social media-wise. And 
I want to give, if, if we aren't, as a teacher, I want to, I believe Scripture has something to say to this message, and I believe it comes from the book of Numbers, so it would be irresponsible for me to not mention it at this pause moment in our book, because I really think it can help us, regardless of political views. I think it helps both people, no matter where you're coming from. And, it's, and this, is, this is what I was thinking of. Five chapters ago, all right, Five chapters ago, Numbers chapter 21, the people rebelled. God heard the cry for help, the cry for repentance from this new generation. Unlike their previous parents' generation, they actually repented. And God gave them this symbol. He said to Moses, make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole. People will look to it. They'll be saved from, these, from, from dying of these fiery serpents that I've sent among you. So by looking at the means of the punishment, you're actually saved from that punishment, which foreshadowed the cross. By looking at the execution of the innocent on behalf of the guilty, you're actually saved from execution eternally, but for your own sins. There was all that. Go back and look at the YouTube video or the podcast, Numbers 21. Uh, it's called Snakes on a Pole. But the purpose, Israel was given the set, this thing, this symbol, as a nation. Now there's only ever been one nation in the history of the world who could legitimately say, we are God's nation, ever. And it was covenant Israel of the first and second temple period. That's it. No other nation in the history of the world could ever claim that. So that nation, literally God's nation, he gave them this symbol. And it was a national symbol. And it remained as a symbol in Israel. That serpent was literally the thing that people looked to to not die and to show their faith in God. And God commanded that Moses make it. Okay? It was put up on a pole, like a standard, like a banner, like an emblem, like a flag. Well, it stayed in Israel for about 700 years. It was a national symbol in Jerusalem itself later when the temple, when the tabernacle was moved and became the temple, that was there. God had commanded it. Jesus, we saw in that lesson, Jesus, when he wanted to say, hey, you want to know what my death is going to be like? It's going to be like that serpent that Moses made in the wilderness and lifted up. So everybody looks to that. They look to me. So in other words, the point is, is a national symbol. It was a visible symbol. You cannot get any more sacred than that symbol. Lives, including the life of the Son of God, was symbolized in this thing, okay? I just want to make this crystal clear. Of all the symbols ever in the history of the world, this is arguably the most sacred national symbol. National symbol. This was Israel's. This was not Egypt's. This was not Assyria's. This was Israel's thing. This is in numbers. So, well and good. Just a few centuries later, in 2 Kings, Israel had a history of rebelling and then revival and then rebel and then revival. And then, and this is the passage that jumped out to this morning to me. In 2 Kings 18, after these periods of ups and downs, near the end, right before the whole nation was about to be destroyed, we read chapter 18 of 2 Kings. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, 
He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. These are all pagan worship things that Israel had allowed to creep into their national identity. He broke into pieces the bronze serpent Moses had made, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses. One of the commands the Lord had given Moses was to make this serpent. Yet Hezekiah destroyed it. So this is, what does this have to do with anything? In the current controversy going on right now, there are voices on both sides. And it's bigger than just a football player kneeling for a flag. I mean, that's, that's the outward issue. That's the flashpoint. That's, the, that's the, the match or the spark that's lighting the flame. What's really going on, though, is you have two groups of people. And, well, you actually have a lot, but two poles of people and a bunch of people in the middle wondering, what do we do with all this? One poll says, the national anthem, the flag. These are things that my parents and my grandparents fought and died for. I had buddies that I left mangled on beaches in Normandy or in jungles of Vietnam or strewn across the sands in Desert Storm who fought and died for this flag and what you're doing is a slap in the face to those people. Now, that is a legitimate point of view because of what the people who take that view have gone through. And the flag to them, that symbol has a profound meaning to them. Other group, another side, says what the flag symbolizes is great. The reality of us in this country right now on whatever issue it is, is not living up to those ideals. So I'm going to call attention to that, and I'm going to do it on the largest platform I possibly can. And what's bigger in America than NFL football? So you have two groups. Now, for the people that think that, that's legitimate as well. Because they have brothers, they have sisters, they have kids who have been on the receiving end of treatment that was not what America stands for. And that's just a fact. Now, does that mean that everybody, this is where the issues start piling in. Wait, are you saying that police shouldn't arrest people? Are you saying that, you know, you should, hold, slow down. The issues at hand are, there's a sense of perceived injustice. Whether it's true or not, it is valid and real on the part of people that are wanting to protest something. And there's a sense of honor and gratitude for a nation on the part of others. And those two are coming into conflict on a national stage. And our president happens to be stirring the pot with Twitter and making it even that much more contentious. And people are kind of lining up on both sides. When I was thinking about this and, and interacting with people, for myself, personally, I grew up very patriotic. I would tear up when Lee Greenwood would sing Proud to Me an American. I remember Desert Storm. I remember tying the yellow ribbons. I remember all that stuff. It's not bad. Patriotism is not a bad thing. What I started to see as I got older 
was how easily patriotism, which is love of your country, can morph into nationalism, which is love and devotion to your country over anything else. My country, right or wrong? That's idolatry. That's idolatry. Patriotism is not my country, right or wrong. Patriotism is my country, and if it's wrong, I'm going to try and change it or speak up to it or whatever. Why? Because I love my country, I love the people, this and this and this. So in this issue, I've found myself kind of in the middle somewhere. But I look at both sides and I see, hey, there are valid points that aren't getting heard because of all the noise and the extra issues that are being piled on. And there are many discussions that are being lumped into this whole brouhaha over kneeling and flags and anthems that are, at their core, completely different. So I heard one quote that said, from this side, it said, uh, this San Francisco quarterback kneeling to protest the anthem, saying that that's a protest of the anthem is like saying that Rosa Parks was protesting public transportation. And the point being is, is it's not the anthem that's being disrespected, it's, it's the other stuff. But then other groups are saying, if you're going to protest those things, great, but by doing that, you're, you're, you're intentionally or not treading on the memories and the feelings and the passion and the pain that people felt. And so these issues are swirling around. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that's disturbed me about the discussion, though, and, and the, the reason that I wanted to speak on this today, the thing that's most disturbed me about the discussion is the level of anger that I've seen Christians express toward people who don't respect the national symbol the way they think it should be respected. That's what disturbs me. Why? Because, because you shouldn't salute the flag? No, not saying that at all. You shouldn't feel patriotic? No, not saying that either. Perfectly legitimate, perfectly valid. But when someone not giving the respect to a secular, national, political symbol brings that level of rage in a Christian, the question I ask, and I asked this today on Instagram when I posted a picture of this passage, I said, has the serpent become Nehushtan in your life? Has the flag, has the anthem become Nehushtan? In other words, has it become not just a memory that you cherish and something that you are grateful for, but has it become a sacred symbol that not only you revere, but that you think everyone else should have to revere in the same way. To me, that's where you're starting to get into the realm of Nehushtan versus the bronze serpent. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> I'm not saying if you have those feelings for the flag, if you had family that died in the war protecting the country, if you served and you have those feelings. I'm not saying it's wrong to feel that way about it. I'm not saying that. That's between you and the Lord, and only He can know where things stand on the idolatry chain in our lives. But the behavior that comes from that. I've had passionate, on-fire Christian friends spew profanity on my social media thread because I wasn't respecting 
something the way they thought it should be respected. Because I said, at the end of the day, this is about someone not giving proper reverence to a symbol, a song, than another person thinks they should. But it, it could be other issues. I mean, it, it, there, this is just the, an example of it. So, what this shows me, this passage between the creating of the bronze serpent and then Hezekiah's godly actions in, in shattering it. I mean, that, that would be the ancient Near East equivalent of burning a flag. Shattering this bronze serpent that God had ordained. This is not a serpent that Moses came up with. So that makes it even more so than any flag or anthem or thing like that in our country. What it shows me, I believe, and what I would suggest to you is it shows us how God views these symbols, even the ones that are sacred. Even the most sacred symbols in Israel, God looked at and said, those are great when they're functioning the way they're intended, but they are so easy to become idolatrous. Nehushtan was just one example. The bronze serpent was just one example. The bigger one in Jeremiah's ministry was the temple. The temple itself in Jeremiah's ministry had become Israel's national symbol to the point that the people said, Jeremiah said, it's done. The Babylonians are about to destroy you. God said it. It's going to happen. And the people said, you're a traitor. You don't love your country. You don't love your people. And we're going to put you in prison for your protests. Which is what he was doing. I mean, he was protesting vocally this nation. And the people said, no, we have the temple. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. That's what they kept saying. And in his lifetime, that temple was completely leveled. And God removed his name from that temple. And literally, in Ezekiel's vision, their contemporaries, drove to Babylon. <laughs> took his chariot to Babylon away from the temple in Jerusalem. Now this is like condensing a bunch of prophetic history, but th that, that's, those are two of the key themes of Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The point being that we have a tendency to make idols. It's part of our nature. Give us a king like the other nations. Give us power. Give us prominence. Give us laws that say that Christians are the best and you can do whatever you want. Give us you know, presidential decrees. Give us congressional laws. Give, whatever. We desire those things because they give us something more tangible than just the Word of God itself. But what you see over and over and over and over in Scripture is God says, even the best things in this world should be willing to be let go if they come in conflict with how I've created you to live. So, if, if someone acting a certain way about a flag or a song causes you to respond to them with anger, with vitriol, with profanity, with smugness, with any of those things, then I believe with all of my heart God would say, those are idols in your life and you need to get rid of them because they have taken the place of what should be your one true devotion. Now, that's not saying that every protest of these symbols is valid and righteous and noble because they're not. Some people protest things and the reason they're protesting is actually unrighteous. 
the way in which they're protesting. See, there's a balance we hold. When, when, when Pe- look, look at what Peter, remember Peter was fond of quoting uh, the Old Testament. And Peter, looking back at the book of Numbers, uh, at, at Torah rather, at Leviticus, Peter gave this advice. And this to me is what I have seek to balance in my life and encourage others to balance in theirs. And this moment in our nation's history is a perfect time to practice this however we can in whatever capacity. Peter says this in chapter 2. This is Peter. This is like Peter. Pope version 1.0. Like the first, the Jesus' disciple of all disciples. He says in chapter 2, verse 9, talking to Christians who are spread out all over the Roman Empire, and in the Roman Empire, you paid allegiance and you honored the king and you put the pinch of incense to Caesar and you did all the things that the country did to show you were a good patriotic Roman citizen. And if you didn't, if you were a Christian and you refused to bow to Caesar, you were labeled an atheist because you were against the gods of Rome and, and you were killed for it in many instances. And this is what the first Christians experienced, which makes today's conflict so surreal Uh, when you think about it, but this is what Peter says, verse 9, but you, followers of Jesus, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people. You may have been Roman, you may have been Greek, you may have been Jewish, you you weren't a people in the true sense, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11, here's the kicker. Dear friends, I urge you as immigrants and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Yeah. Sorry, 1 Peter, 2nd chapter. What Peter's saying is your true allegiance, and this is where this whole debate kind of I land, is symbols, protests, all that stuff. They're valid. There's different reasons for different ones. People don't have to agree on those things. But what followers of Jesus should agree on is the only allegiance that is demanded of us is allegiance to God Almighty. Not God and God and country is not in the Bible. God and nothing. That's allegiance. Now, in your allegiance to God, can you have love for your country? Absolutely. Can you have love for your people and see injustice and want to protest that injustice by protesting towards the country, the government? Absolutely. Those are valid. But allegiance-wise... Jesus. Now, does that mean then, does this give us a license to say, so I'm going to go burn a flag and I'm going to go boo during the national anthem. I'm going to do... No, no, no. Because look what he says right after this. Verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority, he's talking about Caesar, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men. That'll ring true with Americans. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. So, 
This is the balance that I think Scripture challenges us with. How do we speak prophetically against evil in society like Jeremiah or Ezekiel, even when it means we may be branded as traitors or unpatriotic? How do we hold that with showing proper balance, proper respect to the things about our nation that do engender or deserve gratitude and recognition? How do we balance those? And there's, that's where there's going to be different views. That's where some people will say, well, we kneel before the anthem and then we stand for the anthem. Okay, you know, whatever. But again, that's just the issue. The underlying thing that's more important, though, is where is our heart in all this? And what numbers that we've been in all year, all of 2017, we've been in numbers. And what it says to us is these symbols and these, this national identity, even that is for the purpose of something greater. God did not call Israel to be Israel because He liked Israel. He called Israel to be Israel in order to reach the world with the message of the true kingdom. Even in the Old Testament, the earthly kingdom was a shadow of the heavenly kingdom. So, in all of this, we get to, we finish, you know, Numbers 26, the census is being listed. The last section, it gives us like the, the Levitical census, and it talks about dividing up the land because they're about to enter this land that they're going to inherit. And then the book of Numbers is going to go on to say basically, so it'll, the chapter will end with the first census numbers died out. These are the second census numbers. These are the ones who are going to go into the land. Then pretty much the rest of the book of Numbers is going to be, okay, let's. Go over again what I told your parents. You go do what you're called to do. There's going to be some battles because Numbers is a military book. When we talk about honoring the troops and patriotism and all that stuff, it's right at home in the book of Numbers. But it doesn't... Honoring who we are as a people does not negate being brutally honest with the sins that have been committed by us as a people. And that's the balance that Scripture gives us. So as you leave today, and as we go into this second part of the book of Numbers, keep that in mind, but particularly in our culture right now, as you hear things and read stories and interact with people and around the water cooler or on social media, just keep that in mind. That the main issue, the, the, the leaders of this world, the rulers of the prince of the air and all that kind of stuff, the principalities, everything, they want you to pick a side and give allegiance to that side. You know, support the troops. Black Lives Matter. Blue Lives Matter. Uh, you know, all of these movements. They want you to give total allegiance to those things. And what God is saying, I believe, through Numbers, through Deuteronomy, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and especially through Revelation, all the way to the end, He's saying, whatever your views are on these things, don't elevate them to the place where they have any connection with me in terms of allegiance. I am Yahweh. I am the King of Kings. I am the Lord of Lords. And don't let your behavior ever fall short of that, even if it's for something that you're super, super passionate about. Because even a good thing can become an idol. Even the very bronze serpent that God told Moses to make can become Nehushtan. So for some of you, and, and, and you cheer when people burn it or protest or whatever. Based on your own experience, I think Scripture would challenge you, hey, give honor to whom it's due. 
And don't seek to go out of your way to offend people for the sake of being offensive. And check your motives in using your freedom to make sure it's not just a cover-up for evil. But to those who are flag-waving, patriot, you know, support the troops, burn this guy's jersey, all this kind of stuff, I think the message would be, you might have a nehushtan in your life, and it might be red, white, and blue. And so check your motives. Make sure that how someone reacts to red, white, and blue or a certain song does not color how you treat that person, as especially within the body of Christ. And that's the balance that Numbers gives us. So we're going to move next week into the next part of the book, Israel's Marching Orders, and, and we're almost done. We're in the fall, towards the end of the year, we're going to be finished. Um, so anyway, have a great week, and we'll see you next week.